It's not plugged into anything, so there's really no reason why I should be making noises. You know, it kind of, it's kind of how our week has been, actually, a little bit around here. We were talking about it just before the service. Uh, it's been a little crazy, and maybe it's been crazy in your life, too, but, you know, this is an exciting week. Um, it's a busy week for us as a staff, you know, to do a second service on a Friday night and just getting ready for Sunday and some of the extra things that we're going to do and the baptism and everything. Um, it's easy uh, it would be a tendency, it would be a temptation, as we've talked about as a staff, to try and get through this week. And if you're like me at all, I'm kind of a task list person. It's nice to just be able to check things off of your task list and, and get on to the next things. And, and for us, for me, it would be easy to just say, Let, let's just get through this week and then we can kind of catch a breath there. But one of the things that we've talked about as a staff and one of the things that we prayed about is let, let's not do that. Um, let's avoid the temptation to rush through this week because this is a really important week and, and, and a reason for our existence, a reason for our being as a church. And, and I kind of want to challenge you to do that even with this service tonight because it's easy to want to rush to Sunday. Um, it's a happier time. It's a little bit more exciting. I mean, I'm looking forward to it. We've got some great things planned for Sunday, but I, I think our tendency is to rush past Friday. We don't like to spend a lot of time reflecting on the cross, on the reality of what actually took place. And, and so we're going we're gonna to pause tonight and, and we're going to spend some time here together and uh, we're, we're going to reflect on the cross a little bit. Um, I don't have a lot of fancy words to share with you tonight. In fact, there was a message that I had prepared and it's kind of sort of changed since this morning. I, I plugged in my iPod this morning and I went for a little run and I was listening to this message, this message on the cross, and I just really felt like God kind of redirected maybe even some of the things that he was wanting me to share tonight. And, and so that's what I want to share with you. And so we're just going to spend a few minutes tonight kind of reflecting on the cross, what it really meant and some of the details even surrounding Christ's death, what he did for us when he, he went to that cross. And I'm going to talk for a few minutes shorter than normal, and, and that's kind of exciting maybe for some. But when, what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to talk, and then at the very end I'm going to pray. And then when we're all finished tonight, we're going to just enjoy and celebrate a time of communion. There's a communion station on my left and one on my right. And that's how we're going to finish out the service this evening. In fact, the music will play at the end of the service. Uh, we're not going to do any more songs or anything, but we're just going to invite you to kind of take your time. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you put your trust in him and you want to take communion this evening, you can come and take it when you're ready. And maybe you'll spend some time just kind of reflecting for a little while. Maybe you'll take advantage of getting out of the craziness of the world and just to take some time to pray. Uh, maybe it'll be a time for husbands and wives to take communion together. Maybe a father and a son or a father and a daughter will come and take communion. And then when you're finished, we're just going to ask that you just kind of leave quietly. And if you've got kids, you can get your kids. Don't leave your kids here. Um, but uh, you can kind of go on with your evening. But let's just be mindful of some that might really take the time this evening to pray and uh, to kind of enjoy the time together. So, um, And by the way, I I'm fine with this mic, so don't worry about changing up a pack or anything. We'll just finish out with this. But um, I was thinking about symbols. And not symbols in like drum symbols, but symbols, S-Y-M-B-O-L-S. That Symbols are everywhere. I mean, we, we kind of rely on symbols for everything we do. We use them every day. I mean, when you drive down the street, there are road signs that line the street with symbols kind of telling you what's up ahead, you know, communicating to you what you need to, to expect and, and, and what might be out there. And, and, you know, these symbols make it easier for us to understand what's coming before us. But, you know, communi symbols communicate something to us. They, they help us communicate. 
you know, the computer symbols or, or sometimes maybe you're one of those people, you use those little symbols in your email, you know, a smiley face when you're happy or a sad face uh, when you're sad. Maybe you're one of those that, that uses those little symbols, but symbols are a form of communication. They, they, they say something, and for Christianity, for Christians, and for the church, the cross, I mean, it, it's, it's a symbol of our faith. I mean, the cross says something about who we are. It's a symbol of identification. I mean, we put these crosses on top of our churches and and chapels. You know, people wear cross jewelry. You know, there's probably some of you here today, you know, maybe you've got a cross necklace on, cross earrings on. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, There are plenty of crosses in cemeteries. You know, paintings portray the beauty of the cross, you know, uh, especially for those who are Catholic, maybe, you know, hanging a crucifix in your home, maybe over a bed or something. But the irony is that we are so far removed from what the cross really stood for. I mean, the cross is so common today, so casual today, that it really has kind of lost its significance, you know, for what it means, what it stood for. Because here's what's crazy. Did you know that 300 years after the death of Jesus, you know, before the cross had even been considered as a symbol for the church, the early church fathers, meaning the men who were chosen to kind of direct the affairs of the church, this ongoing ministry, the early church fathers, even 300 years after the death of Jesus, had established rules barring any Christian from painting or drawing a cross. There was no depiction of a cross allowed. I mean, it kind of seems crazy, it kind of seems insane in that they're everywhere today, and why is that? Well, it's this, it's really kind of simple, and that is that up until 300 years after Jesus was died, it's most likely that everyone had seen a crucifixion in some way, shape, or form. I mean, they had actually witnessed an execution. I mean, the cross was a symbol of shame. I mean, why would you want to paint it? You know, there was nothing romantic or even spiritual about it. Constantine even declared that it was a shame that his Christ, that his Savior had died on a cross. And so these early Christians wouldn't even look at one. You know, there are some suggestions that fathers would turn the heads of their wives, they uh, they would turn the heads of their children so that they wouldn't have to see a cross, you know, whether it was standing in the field. Because the cross was a symbol of terror and of brutality. And and the Romans used this as a form of execution for, for 300 years, even after the death of Jesus. But it wasn't just any sort of execution. I mean, it was the worst. In in fact, at one point in history, a man by the name of Spartacus, there's a movie called Spartacus, but this man by the name of Spartacus led a rebellion of slaves against the Roman Empire. And when they finally were defeated and the remaining soldiers, these remaining slaves finally surrendered to Rome, Rome executed, they crucified the remaining 6,000 slaves along the roads of the Roman Empire just to remind people what rebelling against the empire led to. And crucifixion didn't happen in private. It wasn't like they took it to some back street or they they had this field, you know, outside of the city where they crucified people. They crucified people in public. It happened on Main Street. It happened at the busiest intersections in every town within the Roman Empire as a sign of fear, as a sign of brutality. I mean, crucifixion, it was intended for slaves. It was intended for public enemies of Rome. It was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. And throughout its history, you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of people were crucified by the Roman Empire. 
and this extended into Israel and Jerusalem as well. Uh, the Romans occupied Jerusalem at this time, at this time when Jesus was living. One historical record suggests that between the years 65 and 70 AD, at some point in there, when this great battle of Jerusalem took place, that the Romans executed, they crucified 500 Jewish men in one day. But it had to come to an end because they couldn't find any more wood to build any more crosses. And that's crucifixion. I mean, that's the cross. I mean, that's the symbol that we've chosen, a a symbol that was illegal to paint or draw or even claim as a symbol of a church or of a movement, you know, until 300 years after the death of Christ. And today, I mean, it's a symbol of what we believe. You know, it's a symbol of what we put our hope in. I mean, we put our trust in. I mean, we bank on it. We count that there's something to it. We we believe that there's transformation, that that there's change, that there's forgiveness, that there's redemption because of the cross. And, And it's not our simple because of all of these thousands of men who were crucified. It's our symbol because of one man who was crucified. It's our symbol because of the significance of just one crucifixion. So why are we here tonight? You know, I mean, it's easy to, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus to say, you know, I'm, I'm saved and, you know, I, um, I have new life today. I have forgiveness because of what Jesus has done for me. And, and, you know, I claim that and maybe you claim that too. Maybe that's the place that you're in. I trust that's where most of you are. You know, that Jesus has forgiven our sins. But sometimes I think we want to rush through Good Friday and we, we do some sort of an injustice even to our Savior because it's almost like we want to turn our backs on the cross. We want to kind of put it out of our mind. We don't really want to think about what it was that actually happened. We don't want to deal with it. But tonight I just want to spend a few minutes looking at the events that led up to Jesus' death. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to take them right now. We'll turn the lights up just a little bit so that you can see uh, to Mark chapter 15. And and I'm sorry I don't have these texts provided for you just because this is kind of a a last-minute change, and so I'll kind of read slow and, and clear and just invite you to listen. And if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along. Mark chapter 15. But in Mark chapter 14, kind of the event leading up to where we're going we're gonna to land tonight in Mark 15, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we typically uh, observe that happening on, on Thursday night, which is sometimes called, which is called Maundy Thursday. And, and Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was betrayed by Judas. Uh, he was taken captive and was immediately taken to this almost back room of sorts where he met with a group of Jewish leaders, these Jewish leaders that had sent for him and asked him to be arrested. And the Jewish leaders had one goal for Jesus. They wanted him dead. That's all they wanted. I mean, nothing else would do. They wanted him dead. There was only one way, no prison, no probation, death. And unfortunately for these Jewish leaders, they had no power or authority to put him to death on their own. Only Rome Only Rome could put Jesus to death. And so they had to come up with a way to prove that Jesus was a public enemy of Rome. And so they had to pin him to something. They had to prove that he was a threat to Caesar and the rest of the Roman Empire. And the problem for these Jewish leaders was they had nothing. And they knew they didn't have anything. They had nothing at all. And in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62, as Jesus is standing before these these Roman leaders, here's what happens. Again, the high priest, Mark writes, asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And you know, here Jesus had, he had no reason to speak. 
You know, if, if you've seen it on TV before, you know, when, when someone is arrested, they're read their rights, and they're told, you know, you don't have to say anything. You, you, you can wait till you have an attorney. I mean, in this situation, Jesus had no reason to speak at all. I mean, he could have kept quiet. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you, are you the king of kings? Are you the one that's been promised to us? I mean, they were real, really setting him up. I mean, there was, there was power. There was great significance in these words. Are you the Christ? And Jesus, even though he didn't need to say a thing, he did. And he said, I am. And in that very moment, Jesus condemned himself. He, he voluntarily gave his life away when he could have said nothing. And there's no turning back at this point. And it's kind of important to note that Mark, he wrote this book. I mean, he's writing to people you know, who were living at this time of Jesus, you know, people that were familiar with the culture. They were familiar with the customs and the rules and the crucifixion and the Roman Empire and maybe even with Jesus. And as we read through these details in these accounts, you know, they're coming from Mark's eyes, and it's full of details, details. But let's pick it up in Mark chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Very early in the morning, the chief priests, with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, they reached a decision. They bound Jesus, they led him away, and they handed him over to Pilate. So they had their evidence. Jesus had convicted himself. Jesus had made this serious uh, you know, accusation. And so Jesus was taken to the Roman leader in Jerusalem, a man by the name of Pilate. Verse 2. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Again, he didn't have to say a thing. I mean, in this moment, he would have been better off to, to keep his mouth shut or to, to more carefully choose the words that were to come from his mouth. But he said, yes. Verse 3, the chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things you are, they are accusing you of in verse 5, but Jesus still made no reply. And, and these are great words here, but it says, and Pilate was amazed. You know, why was he amazed? You know, why, why stand here in silence now, Jesus? I mean, these, these men are making serious accusations against you. And I, as the leader, with your life at stake, Pilate being, I have the right to, to, to either free you, I've got the right to send you away, you know, as an innocent man, or I can put you to death. I mean, the decision comes right here. I mean, Pilate could have let Jesus go or he could have him killed. And at this point, most men would have begged for mercy. You know, lesser men would have fallen to their knees and, and pleaded for their life. They, they would have said just the right thing. They would have looked for a way out, you know, anything to be saved. And Jesus didn't say anything. He didn't say anything because he had already decided to give his life away. I mean, it's the reason why he came. And I think it was tough for Pilate in this moment. I really do. I think it was difficult for him. I think he looked for a way out. I mean, he didn't want any part of this at all. I mean, here's an innocent man that he could let go or that he could send to his death. And he had no reason to have him kill and, you know, really even no reason to imprison him. So in verse 6 it says, Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. 
This was a custom, you know, that at this annual feast that the leader of Rome in Jerusalem would release one man, would release one prisoner just to kind of keep the Jews happy. And so in verse 7, it says, A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. So Barabbas was a murderer. I mean, he he was a murderer. He was known as a murderer. He's in prison. He's an awful man. Verse 8, the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. And so Pilate knew what he was doing here. Okay, here's a man that that had no desire to send an innocent man to prison or to even have him killed. And so Pilate kind of knew what he did here, was doing here, I think. Again, he didn't want any part of this. And so in order to, to free Jesus, Pilate went and picked the worst criminal that he could out of the jail. You know, thinking for sure that, you know what, Barabbas is the worst. I mean, he's a threat to, to, to the public. And so I'll pick Barabbas, set him alongside of Jesus, and let the crowd choose who they want to set free. You know, surely they'll, they'll pick Jesus. And, and there was also something else going on behind the scenes here because Pilate, he hated the Jewish leaders. I mean, he really did. He, he, he thought they were full of nonsense and, and nothing but idiots. And so this was a great opportunity for him to just kind of embarrass these Jewish leaders altogether. Uh, you know, if he could get the people to free Jesus, then, then these leaders would look like idiots and, and Pilate would have, wouldn't have to carry the guilt of executing an innocent man. But in verse 9, it says, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Again, kind of making mockery, not only of, Jewish, but of Jesus, but also of these Jewish leaders. Ask Pilate. And then in verse 10, it says, Knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed, him, handed Jesus over to him, But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Verse 12, what shall I do then? With the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked. And the crowd cried, crucify him. They shouted, crucify him, crucify Jesus. And so they they picked Barabbas, you know, a murderer over this innocent man. And the Pharisees were relieved. And the crowd continued shouting. And Pilate was just kind of shocked at what was happening. And Jesus didn't say a word. And he just allowed it all to happen. And why did he do this? Because this was his mission. It was the reason why he came. It was the purpose for his life. He came to die. And so in verse 15, it says, Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, if you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ before, you know that in there, there are some very difficult scenes. But one of the more difficult scenes is the scene where Jesus is flogged. And so what they did is they took him into a room and they tied him up and then they took this whip. They took this whip that had several strands of leather on it and at the end of each piece of leather there were, there were pieces of bone, uh, pieces of lead, sharp rocks and even glass and, and maybe even some nails and, and they would whip Jesus, they, they would whip whoever the prisoner was. Uh, they, they would whip them along the back, but in such a way that the whip would actually wrap around even onto the stomach. And then as the whip was pulled away, it would tear the flesh. And, and the Romans believed that you could whip someone up to, up to 39 times. That they, they would whip these people, and, and the flesh, you know, layer by layer would be torn away. Now, most people who were flogged died. 
and, and they weren't necessarily they didn't necessarily die when they were whipped because Romans were ex- the Romans were experts at execution, and so it was one person's job to examine the situation to help take this prisoner to just the point of death, but not death. But when it was finished, most prisoners eventually died. I mean, the infection was great, the pain was too great, they would bleed to death, and, and they would finally die. And Jesus was flogged. He was flogged even before. He was crucified. And then in verse 16, it says, The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. So notice again the details that Mark is including here. You know, there would be some people that would immediately read, Oh, the praetorium, I've been there before. I I know that place. I can kind of visualize it in my mind. And remember, he's writing to these people who are familiar with the culture and the surroundings. And so he's writing in details. Verse 17, so he's in the praetorium. They put a purple robe on him. Then twisted together a crown of thorns, and they, they set it on him. But, but i got to believe that that might not be the best translation, that, that more than just sitting it on him, they probably smashed it on his head. Verse 18, and they began to call out to him, Hail the king of the Jews. You know, in this moment, not only was he a victim of the physical pain that he was receiving, but he also had to endure the, the mocking and the humiliation. Verse 19, again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. And falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his clothes on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. Verse 24, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. And again, notice the details. You know, Mark wants to make sure that you realize that there was a man he, he was from Cyrene. His name was Simon. He even had two kids, Rufus and Alexander. He, he was there, and he was taken from the crowd, and he was forced to carry a portion of the cross. Because when a person was being led to this place of, of crucifixion, you know, on a hill or wherever this was happening, the vertical beam of the cross was most likely already in the ground. And so the prisoner was forced to carry what would be the horizontal beam on their back. And Jesus wasn't able to do this. And so in this situation, you know, there was a man who who carried the beam. Verse 22, it says, They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. You know, again, his readers might be thinking, Oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. I've seen that place before. Verse 23, Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which is like a narcotic. Again, the details. But he did not take it. And then verse 24, And they crucified him. That's it. I mean, mark this man with all of the details, all of the specific locations and the events. And he sums up in four words, and they crucified him. And that's all that he can manage to write. I mean, why? I mean, why no more details than this? Why no description? I think it's because Mark knew that in his audience, everybody had seen one. They had seen an execution before. They had seen an actual crucifixion take place. And trying to describe it would have done nothing but dishonor Jesus. And he wasn't going to do that. And you know, for you and me, the cross is a, it's an icon. It's a piece of jewelry. And, and, and for the people living at this time, it represented nothing but terror. And so the Romans, they, they crucified Jesus. 
they, they took a spike and they drove it in between the wrist bones on Jesus' on Jesus' arms, on his hands. And they stretched him out on the cross. And, and it wasn't as if they stretched his arms to the side, but most likely they stretched his arms so that they were actually somewhat above his head. So that his entire weight, the entire weight of his body would be, that his wrist would be holding that. Uh, some say there, there were some witnesses that said that at Auschwitz that the Nazis would, would torture people and, and kill people by hanging them from ropes. And they, they would tie each of their wrists to a rope and just let them hang. And in most cases, the most that some, would, some people would live would be 10 to 15 minutes. And, and there's a reason for it, and it's because they would suffocate. Because you actually need to use your diaphragm. You actually need to use the muscles in your rib cage to get out your breath. But, but when you're hanging, you, you can't pull up. You, you can't use those muscles, and, and so you suffocate. And so the Romans, again, they were experts in this. Okay, They were experts in execution. So when, when they attached Jesus' feet to the cross, they actually shoved his feet up so that his knees were somewhat bent and then drove the spike through his feet. And by doing this, they were giving Jesus just enough leverage that he would actually be able to push up somewhat so that he could get his breath, so that he wouldn't die too quickly. And so there he was on the cross, you know, forcing with every bit of his leg muscles up just high enough so that he could catch a breath. But every time he moved, you know, the pain of what had already taken place on his back and his stomach, you know, the splinters of the cross being forced even more into those wounds, you know, his brain screaming in pain, you know, Jesus fighting to get his breath. And the Bible tells us that he was crucified at nine in the morning and that he lasted six hours. And at 3 p.m. he took his last breath. And the Bible tells us that Jesus made six or seven final statements while he was on the cross. And, and they were short statements, and I think you can probably understand why, in knowing that he was fighting for every single breath. But Jesus' final statement was, was something like this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Meaning it's over, it's done, no one took my life. I'm giving it away right now. And crucifixion was forced on thousands, if not ten thousands of men living during the Roman Empire. But it was only chosen by one. And slaves were, were picked, they were punished because of their rebellion against Rome. But Jesus was crucified because of my rebellion and because of your rebellion against God. And so as you can see, there's, there's nothing really romantic or artistic about the cross. You know, C.S. Lewis even said, he said, you know, the cross wasn't actually painted until everyone who had ever seen a crucifixion before was dead. No one could imagine such a sight. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus, he went to the cross and he died for your sins and he died for mine. And he went to the cross and he gave his life. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes it well. He says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. 
meaning he chose this. It, it wasn't forced upon him. It wasn't an unfortunate, uh, he wasn't the unfortunate victim of, of injustice. The cross was his purpose. I mean, he came to the earth to die. And so the question that I want to ask you tonight is, what do you want to do with that? And for many living at this time, for many followers of Jesus, it motivated their living, you know, especially after they found that he was alive, that he did come back from the dead. You know, the book of Acts is a history book. It's an account of everyone in the early church who lived right after Jesus' death and his ascension into heaven. And because of what they had seen and because of what they had witnessed and knowing that Jesus did rise from the dead on Easter, they lived motivated. They, they lived with a greater passion. They lived with this reckless abandon because Jesus had paid the ultimate price. What does it mean for me? You know, I, I think as I was just preparing this afternoon and just kind of reading through some of these details, um, it, it finally hit me. That, that I was able to just maybe taste just a portion, you know, just, just a glimpse of what it was that Jesus endured for me. That, that he was willing to go to the cross and, and not only endure the physical pain being inflicted upon him, but the weight of all of the sin of the world past, present, and future that was laid upon him. You know, so not only was he, 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 was he hanging, you know, by his own wrist, you know, his own weight and trying to catch every breath, but he was also feeling the weight of my sin. He, he was feeling the weight of, of, of my abandon, of the times that I let him down. You know, I've been a Christian for a long time. And I think for me today, as I think about the cross, it's a motivation to me that I want to be obedient to him. That I want to be obedient in my life. You know, that he died for me. That he carried the weight of my sin and, and my rebellion on the cross. And, and how can I live with greater passion? How can I live with greater motivation because of what he's done for me? You know, what's, what's it mean for you? What does the cross mean for you tonight? You know, maybe you grew up in a church and, and you've been around Genesis for a while. And maybe you know that you've kind of lost sight a bit. You know, you, you've kind of faded away. You, you've lost sight of the price that Jesus paid for you, and, and you're in a little bit of a funk right now. You know, maybe your life's somewhat reckless. You know, you've made some dumb choices, maybe picked up some bad habits, and as you think about the cross tonight, as you think about Christ's sacrifice and Him carrying your sins, maybe tonight's a night of recommitment for you where you say, I'm not going to carry this anymore. I'm going to hand over my sin and my shame and my guilt. I'm going to hand it to Jesus. Or maybe there's a longing in you tonight. You know, maybe the Holy Spirit's working on your heart and you don't even realize it. And you've never invited Jesus to be the leader of your life. You've never confessed your sins and asked God for forgiveness. The cool thing about the cross is it's a symbol of invitation too. That Jesus has done something that we can never do for ourselves that he paid the price of sin and that we can be forgiven if we'll let him do that. And so as I said, here's how we're going to finish tonight. Uh, there are communion tables on, on both sides of the stage and there are a couple of trays on, on each table. One uh, of the baskets actually holds the bread. And for us, the bread is a symbol. It, it's a symbol of Christ's body that was broken on the cross for you and me. 
In the trays, there are little cups of juice, and, and that juice represents Christ's blood. You know, his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so tonight, as we finish up, I'm going to invite you when you're ready uh, to come forward, and you can take the bread, and you can take the juice, and maybe you'll take it back to your seat. And just spend some time praying, spend some time reflecting, spend some time thinking about what the cross means for you. You know, families, this would be a great time to come and share communion together. Maybe, Dad, you'll take the tray and, and serve your wife and serve your children. And you can enjoy communion together. Uh, but maybe you're going to take some time before you take communion, and you're just going to sit in your seat and pray a little bit. We've, re- we, we, we've supplied some uh, verses for you. Maybe you got a sheet when you came in. Maybe we ran out. But maybe you'll just take a few minutes, and you'll read through some of those verses. We don't want you to feel rushed. Uh, This is going to be a quiet place in here for the rest of the evening. You do at this time what you need to do. And when you leave, we just ask that you'll take your things quietly, and the door can be a little noisy, but just use it as quietly as you can as you go. We'll look forward to seeing you on Sunday, but let's not go there just yet. Let's let tonight what it needs to be, a time where we can reflect, we can think, and we can respond, and we can praise God and praise Jesus for his forgiveness and his sacrifice. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for his life and for his death on that cross. Oh God, and I, I move to believe that, I, I move that, that Christ would carry the weight of my sin, of my rebellion, you know, past, present, and, and even in the future, that he paid, paid the price for every bit of it. And he did the same for everyone here. And God, I, I pray that, that we would just hang on that fact a little bit this evening, Lord. Being reminded of what Jesus has done, not to make us feel guilty, God. Oh, no, we know you don't want that at all. We don't want to feel guilt. You don't want guilt in any way. But God, I just pray that this can be a time of confession, a time of renewal, a time of recommitment, a time to remember what it is that Jesus did for us and what that means. We pray that you would speak to our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen.